0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Bronwyn Peters. I'm here from the the Houghton Life Group, and uh, Ben will join me just now. I'm going to be reading from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me be alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? "'whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt "'with great power and with with a mighty hand. "'Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent "'did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains "'and to consume them from the face of the earth? "'Turn from your burning anger "'and relent from this disaster against your people. "'Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, "'your offspring as the stars of heaven, "'and all this land that I have promised. "'I will give to your offspring, "'and they shall inherit it forever.' And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets that were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in this camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burnt hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it with a fire, ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up and out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any any who have got... uh, Let any who have gold take it off. (laughs) So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro the gate, to the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the Bible fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron had made. The reading continues from Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, verses 29 to 33. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony, In testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you to the Houghton Life Group for serving us, young and old. We appreciate you guys. I think um, I should lead us in a word of prayer. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, once again we come to you empty-handed, relying on nothing but your mercy. And uh, we need you to speak to us, Lord. We desperately need you to speak to us this morning through the word in the power of your spirit. Show us the Father through the Son in the spirit, we pray. Amen. The band One Republic sing a song called Connection. Some of you may know it. The song opens like this. These days my waves get lost in the oceans. Seven billion swimmers, man, I'm going through the motions. Sent up a flare, I need love and devotion. Trying to disconnect, thinking maybe you could show me. If there's so many people here, then why am I so lonely? Can I get a connection? So on. (laughs) This song about disconnection really connected. It's been streamed more than 10 million times. It really resonates with people. Why would that be? seems we find inside ourselves a deep desire for connection, for love and devotion as the song goes. We want to know and be known. It is basic to humanity to want connection, to be naked and feel no shame, to be completely open and transparent for who you are and still be loved. We want that sort of connection, but in our lived experience, Well, that's a different story, isn't it? In our lived experience, we find often the opposite is true. We want connection, but we're deeply alienated from each other. We want connection, but often all we have is disconnection. Why is that? And why is this desire for connection so universal? Of course, cultures are better and worse at achieving it, but everybody wants it and yet it eludes everyone to a greater or lesser extent, again, regardless of culture. From ancient times, great thinkers have recognized this problem, this problem of estrangement, alienation, breakdown in relation. It has its roots all the way back in Plato, but in the modern era, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Marx, Sartre, they all see alienation right at the heart of the human condition. If this... Frustrated desire for connection is common to all of humanity. Well, then it makes sense that it's also our basic religious impulse. Connection lies at the heart of almost every religion. This is how one Jewish rabbi describes it. He writes, I always have my favorite example of this guy, Joe, who sits down next to you on the plane and starts asking you questions. What if Joe asks you, So tell me, what's the purpose of religion? I've got time, it's a 10-hour flight. What's it all about? What's the bottom line? As a Jew, it's difficult to answer. I can tell you 613 commandments. I can tell you lots of laws. I can tell you all sorts of details. But you want to boil it down. What's it all about? Well, maybe one reasonable answer to that question is this. Religion is about making a connection between man and God. Religion deals with a fundamental problem, and the fundamental problem of religion is God is up there, we are down here. How do we make that connection? Our passage drills into precisely this problem. This human reality of separation, alienation, estrangement, breakdown in relation, deals with our deep desire for connection. It deals with absence and presence, and how we move from one to the other. It deals with all this in the form of a story, an account of events that unfolded in the history of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. And if I was to give this story a name, I would call it the fall of Israel. What happened to Israel at Sinai is just a replay, a recapitulation of what happened to Adam in Eden. God created Adam. Adam was completely connected to God, to Eve, to the world around him. He was naked and he felt no shame. God said, this is the good life. This is how you stay connected. He gave Adam complete freedom in this garden paradise. Only this one thing. Don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from this tree. If you do, you will surely die. You will be utterly alienated. Of course, Adam ate, and he was alienated from God, from Eve, from the world around him. He died the death of alienation on every level. Then, centuries later, God created Israel, He brought her into, into being by dividing the waters. And God is about to give Israel the good life. He's about to hand over complete freedom to the garden paradise, the keys to the city, so to speak, the promised land. Before he does that, he says to Israel, this is how you stay connected. And he gives her the Ten Commandments. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. At the top of the list, do not have other gods. Do not make a graven image of anything in creation and worship it. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Exodus 32 to 34, our chapters for today, explain what happened next. They describe the fall of Israel. The whole nation goes the way of Adam. Of course, at the heart of the story is what the Bible calls sin. It's a word we are familiar with. But in Exodus, that word in this story is a bit of a surprise. In Exodus, the word sin has hardly been mentioned. And the theme of sin has been very muted up to this point. Even at the Passover, it is not loud and clear why Israel needed the protection of the blood on the lintel. Israel has not yet been openly confronted with her sin. That all changes in these three chapters, 32 to 34. There are 11 references to sin. More in these three chapters than in the 30 chapters that came before. It's a major theme. Presence is also a major theme. Just think about when this is all unfolding. What's been going on? Chapters 25 to 31 are instructions for the tabernacle. Chapters 35 to 40 are all about the construction of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? What's it all about? You remember from Martin last week. The tabernacle is about the presence of God with his people. And so, either side of our passage, you have a bunch of chapters dealing with the presence of God. Fifteen chapters dealing with the presence of God with his people. Broken right in the middle by three chapters on the golden calf. Three chapters on what exactly? Three chapters on the single biggest threat to the presence of God with his people. And in the middle of those three chapters, so in the middle of the middle, what do you have? You have a dialogue. A dialogue between Moses and God about what? The presence of God with his people. It's a dialogue about connection. How can we stay connected? This story is about the presence of God. How it is lost, how it is won again. It's a story about connection. We're going to look at the story through its three main characters. Israel, God, and the man in the middle. So the sin of Israel, its nature, its motives, its consequences. Then the glory of God, and then the man in the middle. The sin of Israel. Moses is at the top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. We are Israel. Israel are at the bottom of the mountain, breaking the first three. The Ten Commandments haven't even made their way back to the people. The ink on that treaty is not even dry. They found a way to break it. At a simple level, that is the sin of Israel. But what's the exact nature of their sin? For that, we're going to have to take a closer look. So Exodus 32, please keep your Bibles open. 32 to 34, we'll be moving around. Exodus 32 verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of this land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is delayed. Moses just hasn't come back. And the people respond by demanding gods. Why? Make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses this man who brought us up out of Egypt and when the gods are made, Aaron responds verse 4, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. So what are they asking for? Exactly. They are asking for a god to replace the man. Do you see that? Moses had been leading them, going before them. They wanted something else. They had been relating to Yahweh through Moses. They wanted to relate through something else. Because Moses, this man, is mortal. He could well be dead. Struck down by the holiness of God. We want a power. We want a God. You see, they're still thinking like polytheistic Egyptians who believe that to relate to the main God, you can can relate to the main God through the lesser gods. Just pick one. Notice how quickly the relationship through this mediating God turns to worship of the mediating God. Verse 5, they build an altar to it. They hold a festival in its honor, even though Aaron pays lip service to the Lord, to Yahweh. In other words, they decide to approach the Lord on their own terms. And very quickly, those false terms become an avenue for false worship of a false God. We get more insight into the nature of their sin. That's what we're trying to grapple with, the nature of their sin. We get more insight by looking at the God that they make and how they make this God. So, verse 2 of chapter 32. Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. All the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Where did the rings of gold in their ears come from? Hey, you guys have been paying attention. How, is this, how does this nation of slaves, how are they outfitted, accessorized every man, woman and child with gold earrings? You said it. This gold jewelry is plunder from Egypt. It is a reminder, it was a reminder that you carried around on your body. Of the great redemption from slavery in Egypt that the Lord had given to his people. What was it meant for? What was that gold meant for? Before the golden calf, when God was giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle, this is what he said. Back in chapter 25, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. First item on the list, gold. Gold was a symbol of redemption meant to remind them of the ongoing ongoing presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. What did they do with that gold? They took it and made an idol. Do you see the nature of their sin? It is deepest betrayal, deepest betrayal. We see the theme playing out in the God that they actually made. What did they make? They made a bull. A bull in those ancient cultures was a fertility God. So now it's this bull that would lead them into fertility, the prosperity, the abundance of the promised land. It's no wonder that their festival ended in a sexual orgy. They rose up to play in verse 6. That's a euphemism. Their sin was a deep betrayal like sexual infidelity in a marriage on their wedding night. Another piece of evidence fills out the picture. Just before our passage, we read this. So it's 31 verse 18. It's right at the end of 31, just before our passage. And he gave to Moses. When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, in the Jewish Bible, this verse is not the last verse of chapter 31. It's the first verse of chapter 32. In other words, it's the introduction to our story. And that's actually appropriate. It it makes sense because the whole way through the story, the tablets of the testimony act as a counterpoint to the golden calf. So you have the tablets and you have the calf. Both are mentioned seven times. Both are the product of engraving. Both are destroyed in the end, within a verse of each other. This story is somehow a struggle between the tablets of the testimony and the golden calf. It's either one or the other. You can't have both. What's the nature of that struggle? We get to the heart of it by asking, what are the tablets of the testimony testifying to? They testify to God's covenant commitment to his people. By the covenant, with the Ten Commandments right at the center, right at the heart, God is binding himself to his people. So in the end, those tablets testify to God's covenant love for his people. They testify to the connection that he has with his people. And that's why Moses shatters the tablets. It's a very visual way of saying that by building this idol, you have broken the covenant, you've broken the connection. Do you see that the nature of this sin is deepest betrayal? It's an act of infidelity that breaks the deepest of all relationships, the covenant relationship. One final piece of evidence just brings it all together for us. The Ten Commandments, the tablets of the testimony. Two tablets. Commandments 1 to 5 govern the vertical relationship between man and God. Commandments 6 to 10 govern the horizontal relationship between man and man. It goes deeper than that because... Commandments 1 to 5 are actually in parallel with commandments 6 to 10. So that 1 is the equivalent of 6, 2 is the equivalent of 7, and so on. What commandment 1 is in our vertical relationship with God, commandment 6 is in our horizontal relationship with each other. Are you with me? Which commandment did Israel break? The most obvious answer is the second commandment. Do not make a graven image of anything in creation and then worship it. What's the parallel parallel commandment on the second tablet? Number 7. Do not commit adultery. That's why when the prophets talk about the golden calf, they talk about it as an act of adultery. It's not just a metaphor they pulled out of thin air. It's straight out of Exodus. It's straight out of what happened In the history of Israel, this great act of infidelity. So the nature of Israel's sin is betrayal. And the nature of the betrayal is adultery. It's a breach of the marriage covenant, that most intimate and solemn of human connections. That's what Israel did to God on their wedding night. Of course, it only compounds their sin, that they didn't even recognize it as sin. The sacrifices that they were offering to Yahweh through this golden calf didn't include a sin offering. And when Aaron is confronted with his sin, he follows after his father Adam. He evades. He abdicates. He shifts the blame. The idol just jumped out of the fire. You were right to laugh. You are right to laugh again. It's the madness, the folly of sin. The idol just jumped out of the fire. It was the people you gave me. They made me do it. Sound familiar? This woman you gave me, she made me do it. It's no wonder the anger of Moses burns hot. It's no wonder Moses said to the people, you have sinned a very great sin. Do you hear the gravity of what he's saying? And now we have to think about this. That's what you and I do whenever we place our trust in something or someone other than God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whenever we show by our words, by our thoughts, by our deeds that we love something more than God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that how we are thinking about our sin? Is sin about breaking rules or is it about breaking trust and betraying the love of one who has loved us so faithfully? Puts our sin in a whole new light, doesn't it? That's the nature of sin. Deepest betrayal of covenant love. We look now at the motives. What motivated the people to sin such a very great sin? The first motive is fear. Just listen to how the people responded after the Ten Commandments were given to them back in chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Seems that same fear is how they interpret Moses coming late off the mountain. They seem to assume that the holiness of God has killed him. And so they want a God to replace this man, Moses, this man, this mortal. They make the golden calf. In fact, that word translated golden, it's ambiguous. It can also be translated mask. They make a masking bull. It seems like the idol was some kind of golden bull's head mask. And the mask, what does the mask do? The mask acts as a kind of disconnection, a barrier. It's there to protect them from direct connection with the Lord. It's a kind of a heat shield. So fear is one motive. The other, related to fear, probably born of their fear, is the desire to control. And of course, all idolatry at its root is the desire to control, is the desire to domesticate God. We want a God, no doubt about it, we want a God. But we want a God we can control. Because power is nothing without control. We want a God made in the image of our choosing. A God we can carry around in our back pockets, like your smartphone. We don't want the God of Sinai. If we get the God of Sinai, we lose all control. Israel worshipped the idol because they feared God and they wanted a God they could control. And of course, we do the very same thing. Out of fear for the God of the universe, we worship mediating gods that we can control. We try and get leverage over the God of the universe through our mediating gods. So we might seek to control God through our ancestors or through the prayers of a priest or a pastor or a man of God. Through a moral CV littered with good deeds that we can use as leverage over this God. Through our tithing. Through our service, our ministry. Through the people around us that we've made into gods in our lives. And in every case we do it because those gods, powerful though they may be, we can still manipulate. We still have some measure of control. Who or what is the idol that you are worshipping to gain control and keep the God of the universe at a safe distance? And I'm not asking that question of someone that you know I'm asking it of you. I'm asking it of me. Who or what is the idol that you are worshipping to gain control and keep the God of the universe at a safe distance? Who is your golden calf? We've looked at the nature, we've looked at the motives of Israel's sin. Let's take a look at the consequences. One of the core teachings of the Bible is that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. That's exactly what we see in Israel's case. They worship the fertility bull. By the end of the festival, they've become like frenzied bulls in a crawl full of heifers. It's an orgy. Likewise, if you worship money, you will become like money. Cold, hard, transactional. Ebenezer Scrooge. They degraded themselves and they degenerated into what they were worshipping. What are we worshipping? What are you giving your life to? If it is not the Lord Jesus Christ, are you sure you want to become a sad, counterfeit, miniature model of your idol? Because that's where all worship ends. The second consequence is judgment. And as is so often the case in the scriptures, the Lord's judgment is simply giving us over to our hard-hearted desires. Giving us over to what we want, what we insist on. If we insist and we insist and we insist and we are a stiff-necked people and a hard-hearted people and we want, eventually the Lord says, your will be done. The people wanted distance. And distance is what they got. Look at Exodus 32 verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Can you hear the distance? Your people, the ones you brought up, the Lord wants nothing to do with them. And his justice demands that in the end they be utterly God forsaken. 32 verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. If the people get what they deserve, distance will grow into complete absence. And that is the fate for some of them. Moses forces the people to drink the idol. He wants to show them the true value of their God. It's going to pass through their bodies as urine. That's what it's really worth. And then to remind them that this is a question of allegiance or betrayal. He stands at the gate of the camp and he calls out, who's on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? It's a stark question for us here this morning. The Levites come to him. They move through the camp and kill 3,000 Israelites, probably those who led the betrayal. And here we see that final separation as it was for Adam. So it is for Israel. Final separation, final disconnection is death. If God gives you the distance you want, it ends in death. The nature, the motives, the consequences of Israel's sin, I'm going to just summarize very quickly, try and pull it all together for us. The sin of Israel was adultery, a betrayal of the very worst kind, a betrayal of the covenant love of their God. It was motivated by an unhealthy fear a desire to control God rather than to worship Him. It ended in degradation, disconnection, and death. That's the sin of Israel. That was the sin of Adam. That is our sin, if we're honest. How does the Lord respond? We come now to the second point, the glory of God. Take heart. In the words of a famous bishop, the first point was by far the longest. Take courage. The glory of God as is so often with a crisis in our lives, a crisis brings your true character to the fore, doesn't it? Well, this crisis brings out the true character of God in two ways. The character of God is in Exodus and throughout the Scriptures, the character of God is synonymous with His name and His glory. So putting it another way, the glory of God is the revelation of His perfect character. And two aspects of that perfect character are revealed through this crisis in two names that he's given. So the Lord is revealed in the first place, the first name is given, the Lord is revealed as a jealous husband. So in the aftermath of the golden calf, this is how he warns Israel. This is chapter 34, verse 11. Observe what I command you this day, picking it up in 12. Take care lest you make covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. To say his name is Jealous is to say that jealousy is essential to his perfect character. He is a jealous husband. Not the petty, hateful sort that we know. That bully in the white vest. Not that guy. This is the perfect, righteous jealousy of the Lord. He's not willing to share his bride with another. He's fully opposed to false worship in the life of his people. Fully opposed. He wants their full affections. He wants their full devotion. He wants their full love and loyalty. He's given them no less of himself. And so he wants that in return. Are we realizing that? Are we understanding that God wants our total undivided loyalty? He's not happy to settle for half your attention for half of a Sunday morning. He wants all of you, 24-7. And if we are lukewarm, if our worship is divided, in the end, He'll give us what we want, and He'll spit us out of His mouth. The name of the Lord is jealous. Thanks be to God, he has another name in our passage. 34 verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Remember that name, the Lord, means I am. I am merciful and gracious. The mercy of the Lord overcomes. And by the end of the story, the covenant has been renewed. The Lord has once again promised to be with his people, to be present with his people, to lead them into the promised land. But how do we get there? How do we get from whoever has sinned, I will blot out of my book, to the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. How do we get there? Thirdly, the man in the middle. Moses is very much the middle man throughout the story, I'm sure you picked that up. He comes down the mountain as the instruments as the instrument of the Lord's anger, in shattering, smashing those tablets. He comes down the mountain as the instrument of the Lord's judgment, in leaving, leading the, the Levites in execution. He comes down as the instrument of the Lord. But he also goes up the mountain as the representative of the people. Exodus chapter 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see, he is not only the people's representative, he offers to be their substitute. Lord, if you can't forgive them, let me take the punishment. Let me bear the burden of their sin. blot me out of your book. Moses intercedes for the people. He appeals to the Lord's character. He appeals to the Lord's promises. He appeals to the Lord's reputation. He does what the people were too afraid to do. He speaks to the Lord without a mask. How can he do that? He remembers the testimony of the tablets. That although the Lord is to be feared, he is committed to his people. He has bound himself to them in covenant love. And so in all of this, Moses is worshipping the Lord. He becomes like the Lord. He glows with the glory of the Lord. Moses is middleman, the instrument that the Lord uses to overcome the fall of Israel, to preserve his presence with his people. The story has a happy ending. But, and you were anticipating a but, but comes in chapter 34, the part that I never read. You can pick it up in verse 36. The Lord, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That but is why Moses could not stand in for the people and atone for their sin. That but is why Moses himself would die outside the land. That but is why the fall of Israel would play itself out over and over and over again in a long, tired string of sequels throughout their history. That but captures the deep-seated tension between the jealousy of God and the mercy of God. That simply is not resolved in our story. By now, I'm hoping that because we've spent so much time in Exodus, you know there's only one place that tension can be resolved. And that place is the cross of Christ. That is the only place the jealousy of God and the mercy of God can hang together. And they do hang together in the person of Christ on that cross. There the Lord pours out his full opposition to our idolatry. Jesus bears the full jealousy of God in final separation, in final disconnection. He is blotted out. And so there he wins atonement. The cross is also the mercy of God because by it Our sin is forgiven and the presence of God is secured forever. Here's the Apostle Paul. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The face of Jesus is unveiled, unmasked. We can behold the glory of God without a mask. Whenever we turn to him, that veil is removed. We can be naked in the presence of God and no longer feel any shame. Because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and live. More than live. We actually become what we worship. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We become more and more like Jesus. He is the truest testimony of God's love for us. And the covenant written in his blood is the only one that cannot be shattered by our sin. He is a true and better Moses, the perfect middleman. And in him, God and man come together in perfect connection. He is God as man. And so in Jesus. We have at last what we all long for so desperately. An unbreakable, an unbreakable connection with God. An unbreakable connection with each other, by the way. If my connection with you depends on my mood, my temperament, my character, how my morning's going, that is a very fragile connection. That thing is going to be dropping all the time. But if my connection with you depends on Jesus Christ then it is an unbreakable connection of pure love he is the end the end of alienation and separation and estrangement and disconnection and it should be obvious to us from the fall of Israel it should be obvious to us from our own lives there is no other I am the way No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way. Any other way is an idol. Idols end in death, permanent disconnection. Let's pray. Father, we are in Christ. We are bold enough to thank you that you are jealous. That your love for us burns white hot. That you won't give up on us or give us over to another. And thank you that you are merciful. That you forgive us when we stray. Thank you for the cross of Christ where your jealousy and your mercy embrace. Thank you that your presence is secure that we can see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us by his unbreakable faithfulness and love to become a people of unbreakable faithfulness and love. A people with undivided hearts and loyalties. Help us to become what we worship. We pray in the name of Jesus and on the merits of his character alone. Amen.